Baptist Bible Fellowship, please welcome Brian Moore. Would you look at the person next to you tonight and just tell them, say, you're blessed to be sitting next to me. I feel extremely blessed to be here tonight. Haven't you been blessed so far at this meeting? I want to say thank you so much uh, just to John and his team. We all know that meetings like this don't just happen, right? It takes a lot of work and coordination and your team, your staff, uh, just the people here at Hallmark. Uh, thank you guys very much. Uh, I feel extremely blessed. Blessed by the worship tonight. I was blessed by the reading of God's word, weren't you? And uh, I'm blessed just to be back around pastors. I, I love pastors. I love pastors' wives. Uh, I just, I love the ministry, don't you? I love the local church. And I feel blessed to be back here with you. Unfortunately, we missed the September meeting. And uh, I worked for Pastor Slayton for uh, five years and, and loved Pastor Lindsey Slayton. And I was really disappointed to uh, miss that meeting. But we had a, a good excuse uh, my wife and I have been praying for four years to adopt a little girl uh, from the Philippines. And uh, it was that same period of time, uh, whenever the national meeting was, that my wife and I uh, traveled over to, uh, we call it L.A. is where our daughter's from, uh, Lower Antipolo, uh, there in Manila. And I've got a picture of uh, our little girl and our time. That was whenever we uh, picked her up there and her caretaker. And uh, she grew up in a, a, a beautiful Christian orphanage there from the day she was born in this small little village there. I got another picture that you can be able to see. Her name is uh, Nicolie, but uh, in true Filipino fashion, they call her Nick Nick. And uh, she just turned uh, four years old. And uh, I actually have a picture of, of all of my children. This is Sadie. Uh, she's 10. Brayden's 8. And then uh, Nick Nick, uh, as I mentioned, just turned 4. And she's never been outside of her little village, so everything right now blows her mind. Like automatic faucets. <laughs> automatic toilets. And here's what she says. She says, what is this? I was out of town, and, and uh, I came back in town, and we have a routine at my house whenever I, I go out of town at a conference or to speak, and, and my kids always know I always bring them something back. You do this. You know, when I was in the airport, I always go to a little gift shop, so my kids have like, you know, eight of those little airplanes. They have all of these little gifts from the gift shop, so uh, they know the drill. So right when I got in the door, they go into the living room, they sit down, they've got their eyes closed and their hands open, and... They were pumped, but this is Nick Nick's first experience of this. So she's sitting there, and we kind of explain what we're going to do, that I have gifts for everyone. And so I gave a gift to Sadie, and then I gave a gift to Braden. And as I pulled the gift out of my bag, I said, this next gift is for my main man. And Nick Nick says, what is this main man? <laughs> so I'm trying to explain to this little four-year-old girl that speaks broken English what main man is, and, and I'm not sure that it's resonating. And a couple nights later, I was putting her to bed, and I took my hands, and I put them on her beautiful Filipino skin. And I looked in her big brown eyes, and as she stared at me, I looked at her, and I said, Nicolie, 
you are my girl. And she looked back at me and she said, no, I am your main man. <laughs> I want you to imagine a world tonight, if you could. Imagine a world where the cloud is just something in the sky that produces rain. Imagine a world where 4G describes the parking place where you parked at the airport. Uh, imagine a world where an app or an application, that's something that a high school student is filling out to be able to enter into college. But this is language from a lost tribe, a lost generation called us, 2008. The theme of this meeting is preach the word. And I want to talk to you about the word of God tonight, but I feel compelled to talk to you about technology tonight. And not in a spirit of anti-technology. Don't worry, we're not going to take out our, our phones and, and we're not going to take out our tablets and, and, and do like we did in the youth ministry days where we, we burn them. <laughs> Remember when we get back from youth camp and we'd have the bonfire and we'd get all of our rock music out and We'd throw it in while we sing step by step, you'll lead me all the days of my life. We're not going to do that tonight, although sometimes I, I wonder if it might be a good idea to kind of get rid of these things. Because this thing for me can be a weapon of mass distraction. Imagine a world where the Amazon It's just a river in South America. Imagine a world where you're on the highway and your car breaks down and you're just stuck. Unless someone stops by and picks you up and takes you to this, this archaic device only found now in the Smithsonian called a payphone. Uh, imagine a world where you go to dinner with your spouse, with your children, with your friends, and no one's looking down the entire time. What I'm describing to you tonight is a world called 1998. The world is changing at an exponential rate of speed. But God's word, it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And may we never forget where the power lies. It's not in technology. It's in preaching the word of God. Because he says God's word will not return void. But innovation has never been faster than it is today. That's why the phone you bought a few weeks ago is already out of date. Some of you may remember when we just had one screen in the house. Growing up, we had one screen. I was my dad's remote control. We had one screen, and it was this big oak piece of furniture that weighed like a thousand pounds. Five stations. And when my dad needed to change the channel, when he got bored, he would just yell, Brian! 
And I'd come running in and he'd say, Channel 4. Some of you remember those days. Some of you, the only reason why you were born is because your father wanted a remote control. <laughs> and as the world continues to change, we're more connected than we've ever been, but more isolated at the same time. And I wanted to pose a question tonight, and the question I want to pose is, is sometimes there are good things that happen with certain things in technology and certain things inside of us, but we fail to ask the question, how is this affecting us? For instance, Socrates, he mourned the invention of the pen. And the reason why he mourned is because he asked the question, although there's benefits, how will this affect us? And he said, this will affect human memory. This will affect the way that we use our brain. And we, we live in this technologically advanced world, but it's affected us as well. We are busy and we are tired. As a matter of fact, you probably said it while you've been here. Somebody said, how you doing? And our, our first response is, busy. And it's almost as if that's a good thing. And we carry around this, this busyness, almost as if it's this badge of honor. But, but just maybe, busyness is a badge of brokenness. And we're building like we've never built before. But we have to build a Starbucks on every corner just so we can consume enough coffee to keep up with our busy and tired lives. I want to ask the question, how are things affecting us today? And I want to go back, 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 back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. It's on the screen tonight. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. By the way, aren't you glad he created female men? You know, we were supposed to look tonight and be able to say, hey, you know, Randy said, hey, look next to you and say, hey, you need me? I looked at my wife and said, I need you. God created male and female. He created them. And then verse 28 says, then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have, here's a key word. What's the word? Dominion. I want you to have dominion over the fish of the sea. God was giving out job descriptions, and he was saying, listen, you fish, I want you to swarm up and down the currents. He says, you've got a job that you have to do, but be careful because some of you are delicious. And then he told the birds, I want you to soar, I want you to fly, but be careful because some of you are delicious as well. But it was only humans that he said, woven into the fabric of your DNA, you bear my image. You are my icon. He says, you're going to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves. We have the image of God. But God said, there's a hierarchy. And I want you to understand that I'm God. I am in charge. If you look at the org chart, I'm on the top. I'm large, and I'm in charge. And he says, but I'm also going to give you dominion. 
and you're going to have authority. And for so many of you in this room, I'm giving you leadership, and I'm giving you gifts of evangelism, and I'm giving you gifts of discipleship, and I want you to make disciples. And he says, you're going to have this ambition, you're going to have this leadership to be able to rule, but don't flip the hierarchy. Because when the hierarchy gets flipped, that's when things get out of control. And that's exactly what happened two chapters over with Adam and Eve. And that's when sin entered the world. And sin is always flipping the hierarchy. S-I-N. Sin is when we say, I am in charge. I am in the middle. I will do what I want to do. And God calls that attitude sin. Anytime you get addicted to anything on this earth, you're flipping the hierarchy. That's why if you ever look at AA or Celebrate Recovery, one of the reasons why it works is because you have to come to an admission that you are powerless and that I'm powerless over alcohol. And there's incredible healing because you're putting the hierarchy back in place. And that's exactly what salvation is. Ultimately, salvation is saying, God, you can have your seat back. God, you are the boss. You are the coach. You are the CEO. You are in control. But I humbly stand before you tonight. And I humbly admit that there have been seasons in my life as a pastor when I've let the hierarchy get flipped. And I've let the church become about my own significance rather than about God. I get this magazine every year, and I think you do too. This is the uh, Outreach 100. You guys get this magazine? It's the 100 fastest growing churches in America and the 100 largest churches in America. And every year I get this magazine, and, and you know what I call this? Pastor Pornography. And even as you, as you look inside, you know, you, you'll be able to notice that there's, there's, there's even a, a centerfold that's here. And I begin to look inside, and I begin to get pumped full of envy and comparison. And it becomes about my own significance. And that's when the hierarchy gets flipped because it becomes more about me than it does about God. And for many years of my life, I lived with significance. And I believe that some of that comes from ambition. And, and, and here's the thing that I've learned about living life with significance and having that as a, a value in my life is God's kind of wired me that way, but I don't want to make it the top level of the rung of my ladder. See, because if you live life, I'm a goal setter. Many of you may be goal setters as well. And here's what I've learned about goal setting is that I set a goal, and if I don't hit it, how do you feel? I feel like a loser. But here's what I've also learned. I've been blessed to hit some of my goals, and so have you. And after I hit the goal, guess what I say now? Now what? What's next? It's a game you can never win. That's why I don't want significance to be my highest value in life. Now, don't get me wrong. Randy mentioned those 2,800 people that died while he was speaking. I want to make it hard for people to go to hell. 
I want them, I, I, I want us to set up roadblocks in our churches. Let's say, before you go to hell, you got to get past us and our congregation and our church first. And I'm not anti-church growth. I believe that healthy things grow. Jesus said, I will build my church. And someone has said that sometimes we ask the wrong questions. We ask the question, how do I get my church to grow? And the right question to ask is, what's keeping your church from growing? And I have ambition, and you have ambition, and it's God-given ambition. And for many of you, it may be attached to leadership or administration or evangelism to to build a church, to, to make disciples. And some of you, maybe you're not reaching people and making disciples because of fear. You know what fear is? False evidence appearing real. Or for some of you, it's forget everything and run. (laughs) I have an image of a scarecrow tonight. And sometimes in the church as a pastor, decisions are much like this scarecrow right here. Now that scarecrow, it's just dressed up in old clothes. That scarecrow has no power, but it scares a lot of birds away. And what the farmer does is he puts the scarecrow there to keep all of the birds away. And a lot of people don't make decisions because of fear. I I can tell you, over the last 11 years at our church, this has been our process. Change, resistance, growth. Change, resistance, growth. One of my mentors is Gary McIntosh, and Gary McIntosh told me, he said, Brian, your church will only grow at the level of pain that you can withstand as the senior leader. Change, resistance, growth. But so often what happens is it's like a scarecrow. We have fear. For some of you, you have a staff member you need to let go, and you know it, but it's a scarecrow and it has you afraid. For some of you, you need to make a decision in your church, but you're afraid of somebody that maybe has a lot of money in the church and how it's going to affect them and how it's overall going to affect the church. Some of you are fearful to make decisions. And can I just tell you, as we went through change, resistance, growth, it wasn't the absence of fear. We made a lot of decisions where I felt fear inside. But courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is fear that said its prayers. And here's what I want to be. And here's what I want to challenge you to be. To be a bird that flies. And when you see the scarecrows, you use that as a sign. That's where the fruit is. That's where the harvest is. To move toward your fear. Because God hasn't given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Genesis chapter 10 tells the story a few chapters later after we were given dominion. It says, Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And we know what happened at Babel. We we know the story. Here's Nimrod, this leader that allowed the hierarchy to get flipped in his life. As you go over to the next chapter, in chapter 11, 
and verse 3. It says, or verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Next verse. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks. And let's bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone. I want to talk just a moment about this brick for a second. Because this was the height of technology of their day and time. Before this, they only had stone, and you can't stack stone very high. But when Nimrod and the team got together, they took the mortar and they baked it to be able to make a brick that can now stack. This brick was the advancement of technology of their day. If you were at a party and a guy had a brick, they'd say, who invited the rich guy? The, the brick was the iPhone of its day. And God had no problem with the brick. There wasn't any issue with the brick, but as you continue to read on in the story, the, the brick was used to build cities. It says, lest we be, it says, and they said, come let us build ourselves a city. I, I believe God said, go build. You can build. Use your ambition to build. Create things. The brick is not the problem. But he said, here's where the problem comes in. When they wanted to make a tower whose top is in the heavens, and here's the motive of their heart. Let us make a name for ourselves. The question tonight is this. When it comes to your ambition, ambition can be used for good. And we've seen it be used for good to build. But ambition can also be destructive. Are we being a Nimrod? And this is the one acid test. Are we making a name for ourselves? I want to leave you with a story, then a prayer. There's a story of a wealthy man that sought out to build a yacht. And his intention was to build the most talked about yacht that ever sailed on the water. And he spared no money. And he spared no expense and effort. He outfitted this yacht with colorful sails and complete rigging, comfortable conveniences. The decks, they were made of teak wood. The fittings were custom polished brass. And on the stern was the name of the ship in giant gold letters that could be seen from afar. The name of the ship, the Persona. As he began to build the ship, he fantasized and he anticipated the applause of all of the people that were members of the boat club. And the more he began to think about their appreciation and their applause, the more time he began to put on the appearance of the boat. And he thought to himself, not once have I ever heard anybody ever talk about the underside of the boat. So little focus was put on the keel are the parts of the boat that would bring balance and stability. So acting with the perception of the crowd in mind, he didn't focus on the things that would bring stability, and he didn't create a boat that could handle the sea. And he began to listen to conversations about people. And he noticed that when people would talk about others, they always praised the exterior 
the colorful sails, the shape of the sails, the, the cabin luxuries, the, the riggings, the, the decks. The, they talked about the potential speed of the boat. And everything that was visible, he said, we've got to do with excellence. But the things that are invisible generally were forgotten. And he was right. What the boat club people saw, they praised. He overheard him one day talking about his boat and his efforts and his work. And he overheard them talking and saying that they may name him Commodore of the boat club. And the day of the maiden voyage had arrived and champagne was broken over the bow and it was time to set sail. And it was that day that he heard what he had anticipated for years, the cheers and the applaud around him. And as the breeze filled the sails, it pushed the persona from the dock. And there he was, standing at the helm. And it wasn't long that the persona was just a blip on the horizon. And as that boat began to cut through the swells, he gripped that rudder with a feeling of fierce pride and confidence began to rush through him that everything was his to control, that he could control the boat, that he could control his position in the boat club, that he would be the Commodore, even the ocean, it was his to control. But a few miles out to sea, a storm arose. Not a hurricane, but not a minor squall either. The winds were rushing at 40 knots. The waves were crashing at 15 feet tall. And the persona began to shudder. And water began to seep into the boat. And bad things began to happen. And for the first time, his confidence was shook. And within minutes, the colorful sails were shreds. The splendid mass was splintered to pieces, and the teakwood decks and the luxurious cabin was awash with water. And before he could prepare, a wave hurled on the persona, and it capsized. Now this is important, because most boats at that moment would have righted themselves up after such a battering. But the persona didn't. Why, you ask? Because the builder ignored the important parts of the boat. He ignored what was below the waterline. And in a moment, when a well-designed keel and an adequate ballast could have saved his life, it was nowhere to be found. This man was more concerned about appearance and he didn't put enough time and the needed parts that bring resilience and stability in the secret, unseen places where the storms are withstood. Being confident in his ability to be able to sail, he never contemplated a situation that he couldn't manage. Investigators later revealed that there were no rescue devices, no rafts, 
no life jackets, no emergency radios. So this result of this mixture of poor planning and blind pride left him lost at sea. And only the wreckage of the persona as it washed ashore became the first time that this man's boat club friends discovered what happened. And they said, only a fool would build a boat like this. Only a fool would sail in a boat like this. Only a, only a fool would build only above the waterline. Didn't he realize that when you build only above the waterline, you only build half a boat? Didn't he understand? Building without storms in mind is a disaster. He was never found. And when people speak about him today, which is rare, they comment not on his initial success, not on the beauty of the boat, but on the ridiculousness of putting a boat on the ocean where storms are sudden and violent and doing it with a boat that was never built with anticipation of a storm. And in such conversations, the owner of the persona, whose name has been forgotten, is now known as the foolish man. Here's what I know. Every single one of you that are in here today, you're at one of three places. You're just coming out of a storm. Some of you are currently in a storm right now. And some of you, you're headed towards storm. And the question is this. Are you focused on what's below the waterline? That's our faith. I can't tell you how many times over the last 11 years that I got the faith kicked out of me. But it was what was below the waterline and the secret unseen places where God injected me with faith. And it's at the point in time when you realize that God is all you have, that you recognize God is all you need. And I don't have it all figured out when it comes to decisions in our church. I don't always have a strategic plan and a system. There have been many times I've stood in front of our staff and our board and our church and said, I don't know where. I don't know when. I don't know how. And Simon Sinek would be upset, but I don't even know why. But I know who. And if I know who, we'll take care of the rest. I want to leave you with a prayer that's just been a game changer for me. I have a great mentor. His name's Reggie Campbell. Reggie's a businessman in Atlanta, and uh, he is a he is a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, and Reggie pours into my life, and he sent me something about a year and a half ago that I read almost every single day. It's called the Surrender Contract. And I just want to share it with you tonight, and my prayer is maybe it'll bless you like it has me. It says, Dear Lord, I give myself to you without reservation, and I surrender to you my will my mind, 
my emotions, my body, my plans, my hopes, and my dreams. I give you my home, I give you my marriage, my spouse, my children, my geographical location. That one's hard for me because I live in Southern California. God, I give you my recreation, my entertainment, my career. I commit it to your hands, my successes, God, my failures, my habits, my finances, my problems, my time, my integrity, my character, my attitude, my business conduct, and my relationships. God, I surrender my Christian walk, my response to authority, and I'm relinquishing the following rights to you. God, I give you my right to my possessions. I give you my right to my reputation. I give you my right to my acceptance from others. I give you my right to be successful. I give you my right to have pleasant circumstances. I give you my right to presume upon what your will may be for me. I give you my right to beauty or strength or to have friendships. God, I surrender my right to be heard. I surrender my right to take up offense, to avoid reaping from what I've sown. I surrender my right to handle or control my addictions. I surrender my right to be right. I surrender my right to see results. And I'm relinquishing the following rights to you. My right to be loved by others. My right to change others. My right to life itself. And then this is my final part of the prayer. And I want to ask us tonight just to stand to our feet. Maybe you would make this prayer as well. If you want to, just say the ending with me. Lord, I give you permission to do anything you wish with me, to me, in me, or through me. Say it with me. I claim the above once as mine. Now I acknowledge that they all belong to you and are under your control. You can do with them as you please. I willingly make this commitment in the name and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I recognize that this is an agreement with you that can never be broken. Now that I have surrendered ownership of my life to you, I understand that you will never give ownership back to me. And I accept that I'm not my own, that I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that I have been bought with a price. Amen. Tonight, God's working on your heart. Maybe tonight you want to pray a prayer of just surrender. Saying, God, it's not about me. It's about you. Not a name unto myself, but to your name be the glory. As we sing, the invitation's open. May God do a work in your heart.